Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week we feature the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers and longtime ESPN favorite, Charlie Steiner. I would be listening to Larry Lujak and Gary Gears and all these wonderful disc jockeys. And there, in those days, there were radio wars. The CFL guys oh, yeah. would try to steal the LS guys and vice versa. And so I learned so much about radio. So I was really weaned in the er very early stages of my career listening to uh, Dick Biondi, all these great talents there, and, uh, and how radio worked and how radio programming worked. To say Charlie Steiner has had an illustrious career is an understatement. From his broadcast roots in Peoria to journeys through the NFL, ESPN, Major League Baseball, and currently his role as the voice of the Dodgers, Steiner has put his stamp on broadcast journalism. It culminated with his enshrinement into the Radio Hall of Fame and dedication of the Charlie Steiner School of Sports Communication at Bradley University, but not so fast. Steiner hasn't written the final chapter yet, even after finally calling his first World Series winner in 2020. His big voice is still churning out home run calls. So, Charlie Steiner, tell me a story I don't know. Good to talk with you. You and I, of course, go back to uh, about 1980, I guess it was. I was running the then fledgling RKO radio network. And it was you know, obviously a, a great thrill and opportunity to start something from scratch. And we uh, hired pretty much out of the box, a young kid from uh, Cornell named Keith Olverman, mm. a former coach of the Oakland Raiders named John Madden. Um, we had a, a, a wonderful crew that eventually would include Tim McCarver, Don Cricky, it, it, it was a wonderful time. And you were our, as we called them, stringers from Chicago. And it was very important for me at the time to have terrific stringers. That is to say, who knew uh, the market, who knew the players, coaches, managers, general managers, and owners in their market. And so when there was a big story or a big game that uh, needed to be covered, there you were. So you and I go back 40 years. Uh, that's a story you know uh, that I'm not sure some of the folks who are uh, listening in on our conversation uh, 
don't know. Well, um, it's, a, it's a story that I'm going to tell a little later on in this podcast. Definitely. Yes, we do go back 40 years. I'd actually like to go back a little closer to the 2020 season, which was definitely a trying year for many of us due to the pandemic and certainly a very unique one for you. So tell me a story. I don't know what it was like to broadcast Dodgers games, not from a press box, not from a studio, but from your living room. John Fogarty wrote the song Fortunate Son. And I always consider myself a fortunate son. When I was five years old, the first time I heard a Brooklyn Dodger game uh, on the radio, a Zenith radio, a big radio in my mom's tiny kitchen, I heard Scully's voice. The 2-2 pitch to Dusty Rhodes, curveball, a little looper, and it'll drop in for a base hit as Jim just tried to check his swing and looped it into left. Charlie Neal running back to retrieve it. So with two out, Rhodes checks his swing on a curve and loops a single to left field. Again, I didn't know much about baseball other than I was a kid on the corner who, who uh, hit fungo and ran around with passed for bases. Uh, a tree on the right was first base, a pile of newspapers with rocks on them on second base, another tree on the left side uh, was third base, and then back home. So that's basically what I knew about baseball. But then I started to listen to this giant brown box where incredible sounds were coming out, the sounds of a crowd cheering, the crack of the bat, you could hear peanuts, popcorn, Cracker Jack off in the distance being hawked. You could hear uh, the old umpire's bellow out strike, and I was hooked. Um, and then within the next year or so, uh, I would we had one television set that was down in the basement, an RCA Victor, black and white, and I would turn the sound down, and I would start announcing Dodger games. So I am six years old now, and I am announcing my first Dodger game. Fast forward, I guess, 65 years. Yeah, that's much. I am, I am announcing the Los Angeles Dodgers winning the World Series from my living room. No balls, two strikes, two out. Urias to Adamas. Call strike three! The Dodgers win! Finally, the wait is over. The Dodgers are the champions of 2020. So I start in my basement in a little house on Long Island with the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the most recent game I did was the Los Angeles Dodgers winning the World Series from my living. How strange was it? Come up with something stranger than that. Well, what was the biggest challenge? I, you know, I don't think... It sounded to those who were not involved in all of this a lot more difficult than it really was. As late as mid-July, we had had a Zoom call because doesn't everybody, and all of the broadcasters were online with uh, our executives. And uh, when it was over, my boss called me and he said, you didn't look enthused. I said, well, I have trepidation. You know, how, how often in a conversation do you say, hey, I have trepidation? 
But I said, I don't feel good about this. Um, again, I'm 71. I have, and as I said at the time, I had a COVID target on my back. Uh, I, like so many others, diabetic, it's entirely under control, but uh, COVID does not treat those with diabetes terribly well. Mm -hmm. um, and so a, I think our first exhibition game was the 28th. And a couple of days later, I said, you know, I just don't feel right about this. I might, I, in fact, I think if, if I have to go to the stadium, if I have to go pretty much anywhere out of my circle, I'm, I'm not willing to do that quite yet. You were ready to call it a career. Oh, absolutely. And I told him that. I said, you know, look, I, I get it. If you guys are, don't want me because I don't want to be at the stadium, I get it. And, uh, and I thought in the back of my head, well, okay, um, if this is how my career comes to an end, it was nobody's fault except a much higher authority. Um, and that was the end of it. The next day, uh, they call back and say, well, what if you did the games from home? And I, I was blown over by, by the thought. Um, and I did not know whether it was technically possible, humanly possible, but yeah, I'm in. The next day, um, folks from IT and uh, local cable company storm my house <laughs> and my lovely little living room suddenly became a media room. I had three enormous um, monitors in my house, my big screen TV and then two additional ones. So I could, one, one of the monitors was with an all nine. That is to say there was a stationary camera high above behind home plate so we could see all the players out there. We could see the base runners. And so that was on one monitor. The other monitor uh, included uh, cameras in the respective bullpens, a steady camera on the scoreboard balls and strikes. And of course, then the big monitor was programming, what everybody saw. So that was, those were the X's and O's. The, the, the period of adjustment was maybe eight or 10 games where they were able to sync up sight and sound. And so that uh, Rick Monday and I could hear one another, which that was never the issue. And we didn't even need to see one another because we've been together for 16 years and we can fill each other's sentences out. Um, so, the, the issue really was how do we sync up all of that? And it took a, a few games and, you know, we did, I think two or three or four exhibition games. I don't even remember. And then about another four or five regular season games. And suddenly we were in sync. I felt like I was an astronaut on one of those uh, shuttles going around the earth and somewhere below me, they were playing but I saw all of the stuff on the big screen. Um, and so once all of the technical stuff was taken care of, it was never an issue. Um, again, this past year had been so utterly unique. All of us, our lives were torn asunder. And if, 
And if that was the biggest adjustment I had to make, calling games from my living room, which turned into a media room, um, I had no kicks at all. Um, and then, of course, the Dodgers would end up winning the World Series, and I got a chance to watch the um, World Series film. And, of course, my calls are all over the place because I announced for the Dodgers, and they did well, and they won. And so I finally watched the World Series film. It, it took so long because I knew how it ended. I knew the Dodgers won. <laughs> so now I'm watching it at home from the very chair in my living room slash media room and listening on the World Series film to my calls. I knew I was in that room when it happened. Uh, I remember how, you know, I remember all of the moments, but as I listened to the audio on the film, I thought I was in Texas. I mean, so technically we were able to conquer that issue. And uh, it was one of those moments, I don't know that I would have been quite as comfortable doing it had I not been in the business for half a century. When I think of you, of course, I think of 40 years ago, but I think of you as the voice of the Dodgers and boxing and some incredibly funny moments at ESPN. And all you have to do is go to YouTube and you might latch onto a video of Charlie trying to contain himself on the set. Tell me a story I don't know about a few of those moments where you simply burst out laughing and that was it. Well, the first time I lost it was... <laughs> Carl Lewis oh, yeah. and the National Anthem. That was in 1992. And I think they were playing the Bulls. And it was a game in New Jersey. And that morning, uh, after the game was played, I'm driving into work and I listen on the radio and I hear the very end of Carl Lewis butchering the anthem. And the Rockets, this way! Uh-oh. Oh, the land of the free. That was so much national anthem. <laughs> Written by Francis. <laughs> Written by Francis Scott off-key. Those were last night's lowlights. They were last night's highlights. <laughs> we did a, the 7 o'clock show, 7 Eastern time. And we would have a, a, a staff editorial meeting about 10.30 in the morning, which we always felt was entirely too early, but okay. And that's where we uh, sat with the producers, uh, coordinating producer, and, uh, the folks on the desk, all of that. I said, I heard the damnedest thing on the radio this morning, Carl Lewis trying to do the anthem, and needless to say, it wasn't very good. Let's see if we have that on video. Well, they had Carl Lewis on video doing the anthem, which most folks have seen or heard by now. And so I said, well, maybe we can do something at the end of the show. And they would always give me the weird offbeat stories to close out SportsCentered just because. So now they come up with, oh, I guess 30 or 40 seconds worth of the anthem. Um, and this is the old days when there were tape cartridges and where and this is before we had offices uh 
and where I sat uh, was right next to where people came over to watch tape or listen to it. And every, and I probably heard it 20 or 25 times that day. And every time I heard it, it just struck me funny. Uh, so I thought, foolishly, um, that by the time we got on the air with it, I would have been laughed out. Oh, contraire. So now he, he, he's just butchering the anthem. <laughs> And we're on the air, and I, while the, the video is being shown, I am laughing, as is Jack Edwards, who was anchoring with me that night, as was the prompter guy, as was a stage manager, and the three cameras. So now that video has run its course. Go back on camera, and, you know, I, I am reasonably... Well, I'm totally out of control. Um, and, and Jack Edwards, you know, he was feeding off my uh, laughter. The, the camera guys, the cameras were shaking because they were laughing. And so now we had, oh, I don't know, another 20 or 30 seconds to kill. And we were supposed to go, I think, to a college basketball game next. And I'm on camera and, you know, tears are coming down my eyes and boogers are coming down my nose. <laughs> um, and, and the folks at Master Control said, we got to get off the air. We have this basketball game to go to. And, and, and a fellow named Tim Kiley, who's now the coordinating producer for all the TBS studio shows, he's the uh, producer that night. And he said, we're not going anywhere. Um, and so... I, you know, ended up thinking, thankfully, on my feet, or at least on my ass, um, Francis Scott off key, which, uh, you know, it's a line that has lasted uh, a long time as well. And, and so now it's over. I have laughed. I, I have cried. I have boogers coming. It, it's just brutal. <laughs> and I'm now, I'm going back upstairs to where the newsroom was. And I don't know if I've got a job waiting for me or not. <laughs> this was so off the charts. So I go upstairs into the newsroom to drop my IFB, the earpiece, uh, into my desk and go home wondering if I'll be working tomorrow. So I walk into the newsroom and everybody is still hysterically laughing. Um, oh, jeez. And then... The 11 o'clock show, I think with Keith and Dan by then, uh, maybe whoever it was, it was the first time they replayed, and may have been the only time, an entire segment from the previous show. So Carl Lewis and I, uh, on that night in 92, uh, were, were joined at the hip. And uh, it's one of those that uh, has certainly withstood the test of time. and. You know, I was relatively new to ESPN, so I, I was still trying to figure out how to be on camera every day, being a radio guy. Well, it turned out to be a very liberating experience for me because A, I got through it, and B, I was still working. And C, I was then 
if if it worked and nobody was throwing me out, I I, I could be more comfortable in front of the camera. You were typecast at that stage, in a well, way. Not yet. That was the that was the first one. After <laughs> that, there were another twelve or thirteen over the years where I lost it. Carrie Wood being one of them. Oh yeah. Last known relief appearance when he was caught pissing in the street. Wood was in a Scottsdale, Arizona courtroom paying a ninety dollar fine. After pleading, oh boy, after pleading guilty to public urination. And so when I found stuff funny, I just found it funny and, and, and reflected as such. So it was nothing uh, predetermined. It was something that just kind of happened. And uh, Carl Lewis and I, in the 100th anniversary of ESPN and another 60 years or whatever it is, um, uh, we'll be dead and gone, but we'll be dates that night. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches. It also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online, and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years, and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets, and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Charlie Steiner on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. While you are a New Yorker from Nassau County, your formative broadcast years were spent not too far from here at Bradley University. So tell me a story I don't know. Why did you pick Bradley? And how did Chicago radio become prominent in your early years? You know, I always wanted to be the Dodger announcer. It sounds a little crazy, but that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so in high school, I would do the, uh, the, the, the announcements for school that day. So I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be um, on the air. And I was, you know, this is 1967. And so I had to make a choice. Um, was I going to go off to college? Yes. Was I going to go off to Vietnam? No. And so I applied to Bradley. American University in Washington and the University of Cincinnati. Bradley, I read a lot about because Bradley had the uh, point shaving scandal in uh, the early 50s. And so consequently, they were always in the newspapers in, uh, in New York. And I'd see this little airplane hangar called the Robertson Fieldhouse and Chet the Jet Walker played there. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. Um, so I end up 
at, at, at Bradley. And I, I, I will never forget, uh, uh, Chicago radio was a big deal to me. Again, I had no idea I was going to become the Dodger announcer. That was just a goal that I had hoped I could achieve at some point. So I, in those days, you just got on the radio and worked wherever you could. There was no cable yet. Uh, FM basically played classical music, not classic rock. So there were very few job opportunities in broadcasting at the time. So I wanted to do anything and everything. Um, and I remember driving out, I guess the Thanksgiving break of my freshman year. So it's late 67 from New York down to Peoria. And I'm, I'm listening on the radio, the old AM radio stations where the sound would come in and out, lots mm -hmm. of static, and there was a voice off there in the distance. And I started listening to WLS and WCFL. And, you know, I grew up in New York with WABC, uh, which was the dominant top 40 station and WMCA, a, a lesser light. Um, but now I'm listening to these great voices from Chicago driving through the middle of Pennsylvania at two in the morning, and I ju it just sucked me in. Um, and so by the time I now am in Peoria, I would be listening to Larry Lujak and Gary Gears and all these wonderful disc jockeys. And there, in those days, there were radio wars. The CFL guys oh, yeah. would try to steal the LS guys and vice versa. And so I learned so much about radio, radio, the art form, listening to those great talents through static in the middle of Pennsylvania and Indiana. And then once I got to Peoria, I would edge my AM radio in a certain direction so the reception was better. Um, so I was really weaned in the er very early stages of my career, listening to uh, Dick Biondi, all these great talents there, and, uh, and how radio worked and how radio programming worked. Hey, boy, oh boy, 35 degrees on the Dick Biondi show at 3 and 45 past 9. Happy birthday. Thank you, everybody, for being out there. Capital M-A-Y, capital S-O-N-S, Mason. Right now, more than ever. Where did Jack Brickhouse fit in? Jack Brickhouse, for the, the those who may not know, is the long, long-time voice of the Cubs, and he was also the voice of the White Sox and the Bears and the Bulls and soccer and just about everything. Where did he fit in? Uh, not until much later. I had no idea. I truly didn't, when I went to Bradley, how many incredibly talented sportscasters came out of either Peoria yes. or Bradley. Yeah. I mean, that was all coincidental. And Jack, I guess, was uh, the patriarch of that, that incredible uh, group of, of, of broadcasters. Jarvis fires away. That's a fly ball deep to left. Track, back. That's it. That's it. Hey, hey. He did it. Ernie Banks got number 500. A line drive shot into the seats and left. The ball tossed to the bullpen. Everybody on your feet. This is it. Bill King uh, in the Hall of Fame. Denny Matthews in the Hall of Fame. Ralph Lawler in the, in, in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And so I was hoping if I got to Bradley, I'd call a few basketball games for the college station and then see where it would take. Again, little did I know that 
15 or 20 great sportscasters over the years happened to go to this little red schoolhouse on the hill in Peoria. And so Jack, I would come to meet much later, and he was just a lovely, charming human being. Um, and I'm, I've always been, I count myself extremely fortunate that uh, I played on the same field that he did. You know, it's funny because I was just thinking of this back when we were working in college, there was an old saying, if you can make it in Peoria, you can make it anywhere. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think Frank Sinatra stole that line. Did he and, really? And then went to, in, in New York, <laughs> uh, you make it there, you make it anywhere. But yeah, it, it, Peoria was a wonderful place. Again, I'm, I got there when I was 18 years old and I worked at the college station. And uh, within a year or two, um, I was working at WIRL, one of the, uh, again, top 40 stations. There was nothing on FM to speak of. I was doing news, sports, a hog report at noon every day. Oh, a hog uh, report. Oh, well, that, I, mean, oh, I know. Again, in those days, you did whatever you had to do to get yeah. on the air. Um, so I never thought of it as, you know, it was ironic, I suppose. My Jewish mother had palpitation, but I, she got through that. Um, and so you just did whatever you needed to do to get on the air and hopefully navigate a path toward wherever it is uh, you wanted to go. I, my initial goals when I first started working at the college radio station, maybe someday I can make a living doing this. I had no idea I'd be able to uh, take the path that I did. So there were trips to Davenport, New Haven, Hartford before the significant break in Cleveland. Yeah. And then you wind up in New York. It's 1980. You're doing the morning drive for WOR radio and you're the sports director as for the aforementioned RK radio network. So it's now time for me to tell you a story about Charlie and me that you don't know. And perhaps you may not remember, Charlie. You mentioned I was a stringer and for the uninitiated, that's a freelance radio journalist who yeah, I quickly compiled a myriad of clients and I'd like to think a fairly good reputation. Charlie's staff, as he had mentioned, uh, included Keith Olbermann. There was John Martin, the chief, who eventually became the executive producer of ESPN Radio. Anyhow, I was on assignment and I'm not sure, Charlie, what I did to draw your wrath, but you called me on the carpet. You threatened never to use me again. Basically, you were gonna fire me. Whatever it was, and I can't remember it now, but I do remember you put the fear of God into me. So I'm going to tell you something now I never told you then. Thank you. And I say that because I know it came from someone who really cared about his craft, and it had quite an impression on me. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. One of the things in this 50-something year journey that I've had, I love communication, and I love journalism. I love telling the story um, fairly, accurately, uniquely, um, and just having a sense of the moment. And that's always been very important to me, As more so now with uh, all of this misinformation crap that we've had to live through. Uh, just tell me the story, nobody, is bigger than the story, although too many broadcasters think that they are. Um, and so whatever it was and where I thought perhaps you may have 
uh, strayed out of your lane, uh, I was never uh, shy about offering up an opinion. I was very lucky in that I was news director of a, a radio station in New Haven when I was 23. And the first 13 years of my career was basically running uh, news departments or news radio stations and eventually a, a sports department at a network. It's uh, eight minutes before nine o'clock here at 99X, and here he is, Mr. Disco Fever himself, Charlie Steiner. 38 degrees in the city. We are anticipating a high temperature reading of 59. It's going to be a sunny day. And good morning, everybody. Charlie Steiner, 99X. I always had some sense of what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, and had the advantage of starting in the managerial end of things uh, at a relatively young age. I was only a few years older than you were, yeah. but I had already worked in a half a dozen markets or whatever it was, um, and, and, and got, I think, a little better at, uh, at managing folk. I mean, again, in, in many of the stops that I had along the way, um, I was not necessarily the oldest member of the staff, although I was uh, the leader of the pack. Now, this is interesting because during this early time, you made a name for yourself in a different way. Tell me a story I don't know about the feisty Charlie Steiner, an incident with Wimbledon, and an encounter with a London gossip columnist. Yeah, you're uh, talking about the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club in 1981. Uh, that was at the peak of the Borg-McEnroe rivalry. Championship point for McEnroe. And he's walked away from the baseline, Five, waiting for the noise to subside. Yeah. He's won it. He's won it. It was a great rivalry, although they only played each other head-to-head -head nine times. In that year, 81, McEnroe uh, was going out with a, a female tennis player, uh, Stacy Margolin from California. And the Brits and the gossip columnists, the rags, got wind of the fact that they were breaking up. And there was a, uh, a gossip columnist named uh, James Whitaker, whose previous assignment, swear to God, was to determine whether or not Lady Di, then Lady Di, was a virgin or not. That was his... Oh, what a story. <laughs> that was his... <laughs> so after each one of McEnroe's matches in a very <laughs> compressed uh, media room that comfortably sat 20 or 25 people and a big, long table, a couple of microphones that he would answer. They all would answer questions after their matches. And after each one of McEnroe's victories, McEnroe would say, look, I will talk to you about tennis all day. I will not talk about my personal life. Well, after each match, Whitaker would ask the same question. McEnroe would heat up. And then finally, uh, in after winning the semifinal match, I think it was against Rod Frawley. Whitaker asks one more time, is it true, Mr. McEnroe, you and Stacey Margolin are Splitsville? Swear to God, never heard Splitsville. <laughs> so McEnroe then goes nuts. Ma uh, microphones fly. He storms out. 
And, uh, you know, he launched F-bombs uh, all over. Them. And I'm in this tiny room. I guess I was the only radio guy, you know, from the States who was there. And I'm sitting, this is how long ago it was. I'm sitting next to a, uh, a writer for Life Magazine, back when there was a Life Magazine. Mm -hmm. And we go over to this Whitaker guy and say, come on, man, you're screwing it up for everybody else. Uh, writers can't get their quotes. We can't get our tape. And with each passing day, the, the tension was clearly uh, building in the Wimbledon press room. And now this little room that sat 25 had maybe 50 in there. And it was like a Wild West saloon shootout. People are yelling and screaming. And I'm in talking to this Whitaker guy. And then out of the blue comes a second Brit named Nigel Clark, uh, a little fellow. And he started to point his finger into my face. It was like uh, Earl Weaver going into the face of uh, Ron Luciano. And I said, get your finger out of my face. And he keeps putting it back. And, and so now it's really beginning to heat up. And people are screaming and shit is flying all over the place. And then uh, Nigel gets up on a chair and he says, you want to settle this thing outside? And I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? Um, and <laughs> and he, he jumps off the chair on uh, heading in my direction. Now I'm, I'm reasonably aware that something big could possibly be happening here. Do I want to deck him with an uppercut? What are we going to do here? So he jumps on me. And I hadn't been in a fight since junior high school in a touch football game with a late hit. And I put my shoulder right into his, uh, right into his breastbone, right into the middle of his chest. He goes flying and then finally we're broken up. So now this is a big deal because this doesn't happen at the All England and Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. <laughs> not before and not since. <laughs> Now the Bobbies come in to this press room and they clear it out. Ross Greenberg, who was then the executive producer at uh, HBO, and he was a young guy and it was like their first or second year where they were doing the weekday matches. He said, come with me. And he, okay. And so he hid me out inside the HBO truck for an hour or two while they're looking for me and so i finally leave go back to the hotel i get to the hotel and this is before there was voicemail and any of that stuff i had a stack of pink message sheets of phone calls from all over the united states i'm going uh oh and i call rko my employer i was i was their boss and I, and at the other end, Olbermann, Keith Olbermann, who was filling in for me that day. And he said, because I hadn't identified my name as yet. I said, uh, was that you? I said, uh-huh. So I was not answering anything. And you may recall that was, those were the days when Dick Enberg did those little 15 minute Wimbledon highlights before Johnny Carson. Sure, sure. So they invited me on and I was all set to go. 
And then a fellow named Frank Sesno, who was then a radio reporter for CBS stationed in London. We became friends as a result. He went to CNN and uh, had, had a great career. He said, you know, that's probably not a great idea. So, and I said, good idea, I won't. Next day, I come back and that night, the BBC News at 10, we were the lead story with you know, some video of this free-for-all. And I'm walking back uh, into the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, and this guy with a handlebar mustache and a big burly pipe uh, comes up to me and he said, pardon me, are you Mr. Steiner? I said, uh, uh, yes. And I thought, well, okay. And he said, how does it feel to be an international hooligan? <laughs> now I get inside with <laughs> the press room and there are more people there than the day before and the day before that and so on. And I am summoned to the, uh, the colonel, whatever his title was, uh, the guy who was the, uh, ran the tournament into his office and uh, sat me down. I think, all right, I'm done. And uh, he said, would you like some tea? Sure, how, how British of you. Um, and he says to me, well, thank you for fumigating the press at Wimbledon because we have nothing but these um, gossip guys who are just messing it up for everybody else. And so I, okay, I survived that. Um, as it turns out, uh, an hour or so later, he invites uh, Nigel Clark into his office and said, thank you for fumigating the press room because those Yanks are just messing everything. <laughs> so he was completely <laughs> diplomatic and, 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 and life went on. And, and, and that day at 12.30, they had, uh, had this announcement in the press room at 12.35 or whatever, we will replay yesterday's uh, brouhaha. That's what they said, the brouhaha in the press room. And so now, it, everybody has seen it, and uh, that I guess that was my introduction on the uh, international sports stage. And you know, I got to meet all these great columnists back when Wimbledon was a really big deal. You know, it was uh, Dave Anderson and Mike Lupica and Jim Murray and all of these great, great Dick Schapp, um broadcasters and writers of their time. And suddenly through all of that, I got into their club and uh, became friends with all of them. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill, then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry and look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, Sox and Cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has Farm Acres Chili, Mini Bagel Dogs, Condiments, and Classic Deli Meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com.
While you were at ESPN, it had to be such a unique experience when you were working there in the late 80s and 90s. Along with doing the updates, you were also doing boxing. But the campus was crawling with such extraordinary personalities like yourself, Dan Patrick, the aforementioned Keith Olbermann, Bob Lee, Chris Berman. I'm leaving out a whole bunch of these. Robin people. Roberts. Oh, absolutely. And and then there was those wacky commercials, and you were part of some of them. Tell me a story I don't know about that time. Well, again, I got there in 1988 at a time when ESPN was still trying to find its way. It had been on the air on the air for nine years and was kind of limping along. You know, ESPN, the 24-hour sports station, how are you gonna fill 24 hours a day, et cetera, et cetera. So now things are beginning to happen with the arrival of Dan, Gary Miller, Robin, uh, Bob had already been there, Berman had already been there, the late Tom Mees had already been there, but now all of a sudden, this new group of people show up. It was a surge of talent, probably the likes of which no network's ever had before or since. It was really quite extraordinary. We didn't know at the time. We were just a bunch of jamokes in, in Bristol, Connecticut, trying to make TV. So now they decide, all right, so now this personality thing might work and they brought in uh wyden and kennedy advertising agency that uh, i think still does the nike spots and they created the this is sports center thing and they would come in and they'd just stand in the back of the room somewhere and and just watch us work and we had no idea who these people were about a week or so after they have been hanging around there's a staff meeting and we Going and again, Sports Center didn't have very many uh, on-air talent at that point. There was no ESPN two, ESPN news, none of that. And these guys are introduced, and and then they talk about this campaign they're thinking about creating, and it was all kind of uh, based on who we were. And they, of course, took their uh, comedic liberties with it, and they just gave me. Thankfully, uh, punchlines to a lot of their wonderful spots. Yeah, we, we do causes. If it's something we truly believe in our hearts, we get involved. In this league, there's something brewing. You can see it in Patrick Ewing. And so suddenly, we became caricatures of ourselves in these commercials. It was a, a wonderful campaign, and uh, I was so fortunate uh, that they, they used me as a punchline for a lot of them. Well, you eventually became the, uh, the lead voice for ESPN Radio's Major League Baseball package, mm -hmm. then the voice of the Yankees and the Dodgers. And there have been some really great moments in your career. So I'm going to talk about a few of them. Take me back to Aaron Boone's monumental homer in Game 7 of the 2003 ALCS. His first at-bat of the game. There's a fly ball deep to left. It's on its way. There it goes. And the Yankees are going to the World Series. Aaron Boone has hit a home run. The Yankees go to the World Series for the 39th time in their remarkable history. Aaron Boone down the left field line. They are waiting for... I guess at the end of the day of all the calls I've had, that that's the one that I think 
stands out. It, it has legs. Um, I had been offered a wonderful opportunity to go to the Yankees or the Giants uh, before the 2002 season. 2001, I'll, I'll backtrack for a moment, uh, was obviously 9-11. Um, and I, after the game was shut down for a week on Monday, September 17th, uh, I was assigned to do the first game back Atlanta at Philadelphia. And so I, I, I did that game, which was as emotional experience as I've ever had in broadcasting. Uh, five days later, I was at... Uh, Shea Stadium. We are at Shea Stadium for the first baseball game here since the attack on New York and Washington. And so tonight, the Mets have come home with a sense of purpose that none of them has ever felt before. It is an important, albeit small, but significant step on the road back to normalcy, whatever normalcy will eventually be. The Mets and Braves take that step next. So anyway, I was all over the place. And then uh, at the end of 2001, that was when Barry Bonds hit his 73 home runs. Here comes the 3-2 to Bonds. Duckler, and there's a high fly ball headed toward McCovey Cove. Way back and number 73. Barry Bonds continues to rewrite the record book. You have another connection to Chicago, and that occurred in November of 2013 when you became just the 17th sportscaster to be inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. It took place here. I was honored to be your guest. It was quite an experience being there. And I imagine a thrill of a lifetime. Now, you were introduced by a very good friend, the late Larry King. But tell me a story I do know, but many do not, how this almost became a bigger story about the guy who introduced you. Well, Larry and I were we're very close friends, uh, really up until the end. We first met in 78 before CNN was on the air, before ESPN was on the air. He was at Mutual. I was at WOR. The, he was the MC that night. And he also asked in advance, could he do the induction speech, which he did. And it was so, it was so wonderful. It was so moving. Um, it was something else that really uh, solidified our friendship. Now, just before I'm to speak, he has just introduced himself, and he's walking toward the stairs to get off the stage. He fell off the riser. Excuse me while I take a very deep breath. Oh, he's always trying to upstage. Are you I'm all so right? Jeez. So I go over there and take a look. And there's Larry on his back. I'm thinking, oh, God, he gave his life to <laughs> induct me into the Hall of Fame. I look down, and there he is. He's on his back. And the first thing I said on stage after it was kind of the mess was cleaned up, I said, I have just seen a view that only his wife has seen. Larry on his back. In 2010, you were awarded the prestigious honorary doctorate in humane letters from your alma mater at Bradley. But in 2015, you donated a very significant gift to the university for their new school of sports communications, which was named after you. And the Charlie Steiner School of Sports Communications is the first so named in the country. So tell me a story I don't know. When you did this, what it means to you, both personally and professionally. 
Bradley gave so much to me early. Thankfully, by that time, I had the wherewithal to uh, donate. And how often do you have a school named after you? Now, I meet with faculty. When I met with faculty back then, I was on the verge of being thrown out. So <laughs> I, it, it, it's the damnedest thing, and, and it's wonderful. And, and, and you know, our school is beginning to pr produce some, uh, some very talented, I, I call them kids, uh, young men and women who are, who are doing uh, uh, great things. Bobby Nightingale, Bob yes. Nightingale's son, yes. uh, it, for the Cincinnati Reds. He's their beat writer, came out of our school. I end each of these interviews, Charlie, the same way. If not for broadcasting and journalism, what would you have been? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I truly don't. And I, that's one of the things when I talk to classes, I say, you know, always have a plan B because it, it is so difficult a profession. It is so subjective. Because So if it doesn't work out, and for most who enter the profession, it doesn't have a plan B. And so they would always say, what was yours? I said, I didn't have one. Um, had, had it not been baseball, I would have been in broadcasting in some fashion, more than likely as a disc jockey, um, which I was, you know, comfortable at doing. I don't know that I was great, but I had a couple of offers to do that very early on. Um, but I, it would not have been in anything other than, generically speaking, the communications field, because there's no heavy lifting. Thank you, Charlie Steiner, for telling me a story I don't know. Well, hopefully you got one. My thanks to KLAC AM 570 Los Angeles, ESPN and ESPN Radio, Wimbledon, Dick Biondi, WGN-TV, and the Broadcast Hall of Fame for those memorable highlights. And big thanks to T.J. Reeves, who worked diligently behind the scenes to put this podcast on the map. Will Hatzel, whose deft editing makes this podcast sound a whole lot better, and T.T. Shinken, whose graphics are an artistic delight. And thanks again to our sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market for their generous support. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. 
depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.